Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it, and judge it to decide whether it should be set free <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello, one and all, this is Movie Oubliette. My name is Dan. And I'm Conrad. In this podcast, we reach into the depths of movie obscurity and take out a film, review it, to decide whether to set it free into the world or to cast it back into the darkness that is the Movie Oubliette. Wow. <laughs> That's great. Well, I've, I've been rehearsing it for the last 30 minutes, so <laughs> that's what you get. Okay. <laughs> How are you, Conrad? I'm very well, thank you, yes. Um, still sort of slightly broiling here. Oh, but, yes. But um, probably a temperature that you'd be quite happy with. I can see you're in a scarf. <laughs> well, down here in, in Melbourne, uh, most people don't realise that in winter it turns into the centre of the South Pole. <laughs> if you don't believe me, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you right now. Wow. Do you see what I mean? Oof. Are there any dancing penguins out there? Of course there are. They're all doing the Melbourne Shuffle. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> so the reason I mention that is because since doing our last podcast on Razorback, the Australian classic, I have discovered that Judy Morris, the um, who I thought was just a very uh, successful Australian actress, also dabbles in writing and directing. And one of the things that she uh, co-wrote and co-directed, I believe, was Happy Feet. Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> Another yeah. family um, animal force of nature classic. Indeed, yeah. And it and Razorback wasn't her first brush with pigs either because she also co-wrote Babe Pig in the City. Right. I did not know <laughs> that. Wow. Well, I, I guess she... She was very influenced by her initial Razorback role. Yeah, scarred for life and decided to do it. Because it's quite a dark movie, as I remember Babe Pig in the City. <laughs> yes, it is. I don't think it's quite as dark as Razorback. But... <laughs> no. Well, the only thing I wanted to say is uh, I apologise again for pronouncing everyone's names wrong. When I was editing the Willow episode that we did, I realised that I kept alternating between calling Warwick Davis Warwick Davies and Warwick Davy. <laughs> so I apologise, Warwick, for pronouncing your name too many ways that aren't correct. <laughs> well, you must have been right half of the time. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so today, what will we be taking out of the oubliette? Well, let's go over to the oubliette and find out. Okay, over by the oubliette here. Oh, yes. Oh, wow, where did all these flies come from? Did something die in there? Uh, oh, what's that smell? I'm being pelted with shit now. Oh, great. Get out! Oh, how rude. Okay. Right, I managed to get the film. Survived the swarm? I did, yeah, my goodness. So... The film we are looking at today is the 1982 classic Amityville 2, 
The Possession. It's a Mexican-American co-production, but directed by an Italian (laughs) uh, called Damiano Damiani. Uh, yeah, so his his first name and his last name are just one vowel different. Um, <laughs> and, and it's a screenplay by Tommy Lee Wallace, a longtime John Carpenter associate, and starring James Olsen as the priest, uh, Father Adamski, yes. which sounds like a rapper or something. <laughs> oh, yeah, it does, it does. Uh, Bert Young from Rocky fame, Britannia Alder, who I think appeared in a Woody Allen movie or two, and Jack Magna, who really is sort of in the lead role as as Sonny Montelli, the, the person who is possessed, the possessee. Diane Franklin as his sister and uh, a smattering of other children. So it's a horror film, obviously. It's a sequel to The Amityville Horror, which was a huge hit when it first came out in 1979, scoring 86.4 million in its box office run on a budget of 4.7. And it spawned 18 sequels to date, I think. No, are you joking? (laughs) No. That is crazy. Most of them direct-to-video. The most recent was something that came out last year, starring Jennifer Jason Leigh, of all people, called Amityville The Awakening or something, but it it didn't wake up very quickly because it was actually filmed in 2014 and shelved for three years and then uh, arrived in in theatres to not much excitement. But this is from back in the Amityville heyday. This came out in 1982 and it did pretty well at the box office, 12.5 million on a budget of five. Mm. One of the only three films that was sort of released theatrically. And the plot, it's, it's kind of difficult to decide whether this is a prequel to the Amityville horror or whether it's a sequel Mm. because the plot is essentially based on the DeFeo murders which happen sort of in the prologue to the Amityville horror before the family move in and start experiencing sort of lots of spooky goings on in the house until they're forced Mm. to abandon their own home and this sequel is based on the DeFeo murders so it kind of is a prequel to the Amityville horror, but at the same time, he has a Sony Walkman and they're all 82 cars. Mm, and yeah, I noticed that too. So it's a bit confusing as to whether this comes before the Amityville horror or after. But essentially, it's another happy family moving into the Amityville house and slowly being undermined by lots of supernatural goings on until... The eldest son is possessed mm. uh, and he he starts out fairly unambitiously by seducing his sister <laughs> and but works his way up towards gunning them all down in their sleep, which is kind of the first two acts of the film. And then the finale of the film is a priest who is convinced the oldest son is possessed breaks him out of jail, takes him back to the house and does an exorcism. So act three is basically the exorcist and then acts one and two are sort of the Amityville horror, but with incest. Mm. (laughs) So I think... Yeah, it's definitely a step up, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. I mean, it's an ingredient that clearly the original was missing. So there we go. That's that's the movie that we're faced with today. Oh, I can't wait to discuss it. It's going to be great. So let's take a quick break and then come back.
And we're back. So, Dan, you had not seen the Amityville sequel. You'd seen the original film, I think. Yes, so I've seen the original and I have seen the remake as well. Okay, which is Ryan Reynolds. Yes, it is Ryan Reynolds. It's Deadpool. Yeah, I mean, I actually found this, the, the remake not too bad in terms of remakes because most of them are horrendous. Um, but it's okay, mm. but it is a little dated. There are a lot of horror effects in it that are very early 2000s mm. pretty much only were used in the early 2000s so yeah <laughs> it's heavily influenced by japanese horror of the period there's a lot of um isn't there an extra girl with dark hair that's wet crawling yeah. on the ceiling and so on <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think so <laughs> so yeah so amateurville 2 the position even though it was it came out in the 80s. It had a very 70s vibe to it. Yeah. It still felt like I was watching the first movie in a lot of ways. One thing that did stick out that was different to these possession movies where families move into a haunted house and all sorts of things happen is this family was not a happy-go-lucky, perfect family. It was a very dysfunctional, abusive family and that made it a lot different. It, it, it had a different take to the whole horror uh, trope. And it made the dynamics a little bit more interesting. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's, I mean, one of the many complaints about Stanley Kubrick's version of Stephen King's The Shining is that Jack Torrance is crazy from the get-go. I mean, you can. it's not like he steadily goes insane throughout the film. Mm. He's pretty crackers from the first time we see him even during the interview he comes across as a bizarre sort of sociopath i think mm. the hotel in the shining doesn't make jack torrance go bad necessarily it's just amplifying the problems that are already there mm. and i think amityville 2 is very much influenced by that because you have a domineering italian american father who is violent towards his wife and he's violent towards his kids. Mm. And you have a relationship between the brother and sister, the eldest sister, who is played by Diane Franklin, who is 20 at the time, Jack Magna playing Sonny Montelli, the eldest son, who is 25 at the time. But their relationship is already a little bit too close. I don't know. How close are you to your sister? <laughs> not that close. Well, at least not physically <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I was really confused that that first kind of intimate scene, I thought, oh, mm. is, is he adopted or is, is she is she <laughs> the neighbor next door? I was still trying to wrap my head around why they were so uh, touchy-feely. But um, yeah, so interesting <laughs> dynamic there with, uh, with the incest. <laughs> yeah. Is, is that the one where she's doing ballet poses in his new bedroom yeah i think so yeah <laughs> in the tightest white top you've ever seen <laughs> i mean it, it it did make it a more interesting film because of the incest aspect um it was something that i'd never really seen before and it wasn't cliche in in any way no but it is exploitative and i think one of the things that this film is it's famous for is being a sort of amped up version of the Amityville horror because the original movie, because it, it leans so slavishly on the book uh, by Jay Anson, 
which supposedly is a true account of what happened to George and Kathy Lutz when they moved into 1112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville. Mm. It's kind of boring, the first movie. It it's, feels like a TV movie and it just goes from one incident to another. Yeah. I don't, for some reason, there's no tension really. It just sort of decides, oh, well, we'll finish now. So they just sort of bring out the thunder and the blood dripping down the walls and everybody yes. runs out of the house. And then it ends. Yeah. And I don't really understand why, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, that's, that's how I felt when I watched the first Eminemville. With this one, that, yeah, I agree. It, it's like this movie is a sequel and a prequel and a remake all at the same time. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it does. It's very similar to the first movie in, in terms of the, the setup and, and the general... Uh, progression of characters yeah it does amp it up a a lot with a lot more violence Mm. the incest aspect i felt like the characters were a lot more developed as well um Mm. and and they really used the creepiness of the house um it's such a creepy looking house (laughs) it really is i mean it wasn't actually filmed at 1112 ocean avenue because not surprisingly, the family that lives there isn't too fond of their house being associated with a mass murder and subsequent hauntings. <laughs> Although <laughs> no. people that have lived there since then have never reported having any problems whatsoever in the house. So the house they filmed at for both Amityville 1 and 2 was in Tom's River, New Jersey. Mm. But it still has the most important thing, which is those sort of quarter crescent windows yeah. that look like eyes. They look like eyes. Like in the attic. Yeah, I, I feel like the house is the face of horror in this film. Mm-hmm. In Friday the 13th, you've got Jason. In Nightmare on Elm Street, you've got Freddy Krueger. In Amityville Horror, you have the house. And it's just as menacing yeah. as all those other characters. It is. It's it's kind of the trademark. If you look at all the direct-to-video sequels, they all have the image of those windows on them somewhere because mm. if you try to deviate from that, I think you you miss the whole thing that this is built on. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of an amped up version of the Amityville horror and, it, and as I say, it kind of crams the Amityville horror into the first two acts and then abandons that and rips off The Exorcist for half an hour. Yeah. Which is very odd structurally. It turns into another movie to me. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's like the first two parts are one contained movie Mm. up until the murder of the families and then the third act is a completely separate movie with the priest as a main character yeah i felt really derailed at that Mm. point i felt like there was no point watching the rest of the movie all the tension (laughs) had gone all the suspense had gone um it wasn't anything to do with the poltergeist aspect there weren't moving furniture or anything it was just a priest trying to get permission to do an exorcist uh, for a good 30 minutes and then just doing one anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just kidnapping the kid who's in custody. They've tried to go for a an, an innocent plea on the basis of possession, which the judge kind of scoffs at. Well, <laughs> not surprisingly. <laughs> Um, because, as he says, otherwise everybody's going to come in here and say, the devil made me do it, and that's going to be the end of justice as we know it. Exactly. So, so he just breaks him out of jail, takes him back to the house, and performs an exorcism on him. But I can't figure out what exactly it is. I suppose he's trying to save 
He's trying to save Sonny Montelli's immortal soul. I suppose that's a valiant thing to do. And he yeah. does the same thing as the exorcist, which is invite the demon into him. But he doesn't throw himself out of the window, though, which was a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> it, w- it was really act for act, very similar to the exorcist, the, the exorcism in the exorcist. I half mm. expected him to say, by the power of Christ compels, Christ <laughs> compels you. <laughs> yeah. um, but he didn't. But very similar lines. Yeah, it is. And and beat for beat, what happens is pretty similar. But I mean, I, mean, I can't figure out what he's trying to achieve because surely the kid's still going to go to jail. So he gets to live in jail demon free, but tormented by the fact that he murdered his entire family and was unable to stop himself. Yeah. So that's a happy ending, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I also felt the the face makeup, the demon makeup on on Sunny was too reminiscent of The Exorcist. It just it just looked like a carbon copy. Yeah. Um, this, the green ridged skin and the contacts mm. and and the yellow teeth and I don't know. It was it was so similar. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of bladder effects, aren't there? There's a lot of pulsating lumps in his arms and pulsating veins on his face. That seemed to be how the possession manifested itself physically. Up until the third act where it turned into The Exorcist, I found the first two acts really good. Um, and espe- mm. especially the scenes where the spirit is moving through the house. Oh, yeah. They used point of view camera work so brilliantly. Mm. And you really felt on edge and you really felt that you were the spirit moving around the room and with the, all these characters kind of looking around trying to sense the spirit but not being able to see the ghost and yeah, I really mm. loved it. I really loved it. I love all of that stuff. I'm a big fan of subjective camera work. That's why I like somebody like Brian De Palma, who has an almost dictator-like approach to the camera. So he sort of forces the audience to look at things in exactly the way and exactly the order that he wants you to. There's there's nothing naturalistic or invisible about his camera work. Same with David Fincher, actually, particularly in something like Panic Room. Mm. And subjective camera... I mean, I mean, you had it as a cliche after um, the opening of Halloween where you have that bravura one-shot opening with Michael Myers as a child killing his sister. Mm. You had a lot of wobbly camera point of view of the serial killer in lots of films after that. Mm. But I think something that's as controlled and specific and smooth and eerie as the point of view demon camera shots in this movie Mm. I really enjoy and some of them are pretty ambitious in terms of what they pull off in terms of movement around the characters that they're haunting and and so on and I think the director actually invented the dolly or the uh, the rig that was used to make the camera do some of these shots because he wanted to pull some of them off. And I think because they filmed entirely on a set in Mexico, oddly enough, so they did outdoors in New Jersey and then moved to Mexico to film all of the interiors all right. so that they could pull the walls away and pull the ceiling away and pull off some of these ridiculous shots. Mm. Uh, like you said, it was very smooth. Like they used a really good steady cam rig Mm. because it 
did exude the sort of movement that maybe a ghost would make. So everything was super mm. smooth and gradual. It was almost like it was floating through the rooms and it was very well uh, executed. There's one shot that I really loved and it goes over the Sonny character, like over his head, mm. then it goes upside down. So you're seeing Sonny upside down and then it slowly rotates to be the right way up. And it's mm. amazing, um, just very, very well pulled off. Yeah, and I think that's the one that he had to, the director had to invent a special rig to pull it off because ah. that kind of thing just didn't exist then. Yes. It's, it's, it's really great work and it makes the first two acts of this movie so tense. Mm. It really is quite a tense experience, the first half, because you, you have to remember the, the reason why the first one is so boring is it's, it's over two hours, I think, or it feels like it anyway, mm. the first movie. And you're just going from one event to the other that, that aren't particularly scary. Oh, now the babysitter's locked in a cupboard. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas this one, it escalates pretty fast. I mean, I was trying to figure out the timeline and it feels to me as though everything that happens in the first two acts happens over two days. So they move in, and in their first night, an unseen force covers the crucifix in the hall, there's hammering on the door, the father investigates and there's nobody there. Then the youngest children have paintbrushes that fly out of paint pots and paint something hideous on their bedroom wall, including <laughs> yeah. the phrase, um, dishonor thy father, pig. <laughs> I also noticed that the the font they use for pig was different to the, the font they use for dishonor thy father. So this is a very, very creative <laughs> ghost that we have here. <laughs> yeah, multiple ghosts with different handwriting. <laughs> so then you have the father beating his youngest children with his belt and his wife trying to intervene. And he refers to her using the worst word in the English language mm -hmm. and slaps her. And she jumps on him and scratches his face. And then Sonny Montelli breaks it up by pulling a gun on the father. And this is day one. Now, I know moving house is stressful, <laughs> but this is pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not the happy-go-lucky uh, neighbours that uh, you think they are. <laughs> What did you think about the acting of this film? I think it's it's pretty good amongst the adults. I mean, one of the things that's famous about the first film is Rod Steiger's performance as the priest because it's it's pretty hysterical. <laughs> yes. I mean, I know he gets swarmed with flies, but he starts chewing the scenery pretty hard. Whereas in this one, you've got James Olsen, who I think is much more believable as Father Adamski. Mm, I do agree. Who grows from being concerned about this family in his community to coming to terms with this idea that the son is possessed and, and also feeling guilty because the eldest daughter does reach out to him to try to get him to intervene because she feels as though they're at risk. And he, he goes on a, I don't know, where does he go? A fishing trip with uh, another man? I, I thought, <laughs> yeah, it's even like they, they, went, they went camping. Uh, they just went out, <laughs> go camping and do some fishing with uh, another gentleman friend. I guess that's what priests do. I mean, they have hobbies, right? I guess so. 
Yeah, so he does that when the family's being shot and then becomes burdened with this terrible Catholic guilt and then tries to rectify matters. So I, I think I like him as, although it's very odd that it, the focus shifts from Sonny and Trish and the family in the third act to Father Adamski. Uh-huh. It's quite an odd shift. So I think the adults are pretty good. I think the parents are good. Bert Young, who's probably best known for being a nice guy in the Rocky movies, does a pretty good job of being a, a beast of a oh, of a father. He's despicable, really. Um, I, I really yeah, hated yeah. his character because it was so um, believable and convincing. Yeah, and, and you're lucky they didn't include every scene because quite famously there was a scene in which he anally rapes his wife. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. So there were two scenes that were cut. One is him anally raping his wife. Yes. And the other was the uh, Sonny and Trish love scene did not cut on him kissing her oh, after their continued. little photo shoot. Yeah, it continued into an actual scene of probably gauzy 70s lovemaking. I don't know. Right. <laughs> but, okay. okay. Yes, those scenes were removed because apparently when they tested it, they did test things with audiences back yeah. then. When they oh. tested it, the audience kind of turned on the movie when Bert Young raped Ritania Alder. That didn't go okay. down very well. Okay, okay. <laughs> So he was even more of a brute. I think there's a hint of it. I think Trish does say to Sonny, I think dad forces mom to have sex with him. Yeah, I thought that line was a bit out of place because we didn't see anything or there was no allusion to any sort of sexual abuse. Yeah, and it comes out of nowhere when he's just unpacking his room. Yeah, I know. She <laughs> she look, looks all wistful and then and says... I don't think mummy and daddy love each other anymore or something like that. It's <laughs> <laughs> a real icebreaker, isn't it? <laughs> so the guy that plays Sonny, his name is Jack Magna. I looked up his other films and he's only been in one other film. Yes, Firestarter, which I think is in the oubliette somewhere. Yeah, yes. So we'll check that out later. But um, yeah, those are two pretty iconic. I mean, this one's not so much iconic, but still pretty... Mm-hmm. Good movies to be in, the two only movies that he's ever been in. I did manage to find a photograph of him at his son's wedding. So he's still with us and uh, just obviously decided to do something else with his life other than acting. Yeah, because I I found his character to be uh, mostly really good. Um, he was mm. his the change that he went through, and as he got possessed, he he was getting more and more sort of devious and mischievous. And yeah, but there were a few moments where I thought, oh god, this is a bit overacted. Mm. I, I think the possession scene again. I would say 90% amazing. And then there was Mm. just a little bit of it where he was just screaming and I was kind (laughs) of (laughs) laughing because I don't know. It just didn't see, it just looked overacted to me. Is that the bit where the camera is sort of lurching towards him on his bed? Yeah. So that scene was quite strange. So so he's getting possessed (laughs) and then... Suddenly, the ghost is bouncing up and down on his stomach. I guess is is that what's happening? <laughs> because I, his, his stomach I just goes no in idea. and out, and and the camera correspondingly goes in and out of his belly button, and like zooming in and out. I found that really funny. 
because I didn't it's really know what strange. was going on. <laughs> it must be no, an it's explanation. Quite <laughs> there must be an explanation. Yeah, I don't know whether it's... I mean, obviously it's sexual. I mean, I suppose it's sort of... There's some sense of penetration of, of some kind going on here, which, uh-huh. of course, is something that, that men aren't terribly comfortable with, most of them anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I'm not entirely... They had to show it entering his body in some ways, or, or it's giving him an ab workout. I'm not entirely... <laughs> sure what is going on there what really bugs me about that is although they time it so that when the camera is close up on his face he pulls up his own t-shirt and you're supposed to think that the demon has done that okay but i don't know there's something about the attitude of his body or the movement of his neck and shoulders i don't know you can tell that he pulls up his own (laughs) t-shirt so that when the camera pulls out his chest is exposed yeah it's always bugged me that you can kind of see when he does it Mm -hmm. but the rest of the sequence is just such a, a fantastic tension-building, freaky moment. It reminds me very much, actually, of Evil Dead 2, mm. when Bruce Campbell is in the cabin by himself for the first act of the movie, and you've just got all this crazy Sam Raimi camera work <laughs> as Bruce Campbell's character Ash is being chased around and his hand is possessed. And But, I mean, that movie plays it pretty much for laughs. But yeah. this is pretty serious. I mean, the film is quite nihilistic. The tone is pretty dark. It is. It really is. I mean, just the fact that the family is so dysfunctional mm. and also the whole ancestral uh, relationship between the brother and sister. Yeah, it's not a flowers and butterflies kind of movie. Um, <laughs> no. Not a lot of, if any, humour at all. So it's not that sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, sort of black comedy horror no, you're right. There's nothing really to laugh at, to be honest. I don't even think anybody cracks a joke during the whole the whole proceedings. It's, no. it's pretty grim. Yeah. So, yeah, back to the acting. I found the, the acting for the horror scenes, so with the ghosts moving around them and, and those kind of creepy scenes, the acting was great. Really good, nice, mm. subtle movements, nothing too over the top. But then it went, it went back to the kind of everyday moments where they were just, you know, laughing or doing everyday family activities. Mm. I found the acting worse in those parts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just a yeah. lot of, like, very overacted. Also, some of the scenes, uh, there was one scene with the priest and he's talking to one of the other bigger, more important priests in the car, trying to get mm. permission to do an exorcism. And the other actor that plays the more important priest, he stammers some lines mm. <laughs> uh, and they kept it in. It makes, yeah. <laughs> it makes that character just not a character anymore. It just it makes him look like, oh, he's just a bad actor not remembering his line correctly. <laughs> yeah. I think my Razzie Award for this movie goes to the terrible line reading from the lady who plays the librarian who bumps into the priest outside the house. This is after everybody's dead and Adamski has obviously just taken to standing outside the house and looking wistfully at it. (laughs) And yeah, he bumps into a librarian who has this terrible line reading. It's like, Father, are you all right? Can I give you a lift? It's it's terrible. I know. I that line especially. I expected her to just keep going. Like, Father, are you right? Can I give you a lift? Do you want a mint? Do you want to come home for a roast dinner? Do you want to go to the movies? Just just keep going on, on and on and on. 
It's very strange. And then she says, I know lots of strange things about that house. And so he goes with her to the library and you have the traditional horror movie bring out the dusty old book. Yep, yep. Backstory old, scene. Old newspaper clippings. I know. I mean, the birth of the internet just killed the career of lots of matronly <laughs> female actors who who specialised in being librarians with backstories. Exactly. <laughs> because now you just have the boring Google montage. Or if they can't afford the Google trademark product placement, it's just some other bullshit search engine. <laughs> some other browser that looks remarkably like Google. Yeah, it's called Moobl or something. <laughs> it's just rubbish. But yeah, that lady is... And the story that she tells him is just crazy. It's something about a which builds a house on an Indian burial ground. And that's why all of this is happening. And you think that's pretty bad in terms of a confluence of evil, a witch building a house on an Indian burial ground. I mean, how much worse could it get? I know. <laughs> it was almost like they, they took all the horror cliches and just stacked them on top of each other, <laughs> um, just to make it even more evil than it actually was. Whereas I think actually having it unexplained would have been scarier. Yeah, I, I do feel the whole witch Salem burial ground trope is so overdone. But I guess this mm. this movie came out in 82, so it wasn't so overdone back then. It was still a kind of... I think it might be the origin of the cliche, actually, but it's... I don't know. It doesn't inject anything into it for me. It just sort of lies there as a piece of dialogue from a librarian and then you move on. It's very odd. Now it's time for Random Trivia. Okay, now it's time for Dan to thrill us with a piece of trivia. Dan, what have you got for us today? So there wasn't a great deal of trivia about this movie, uh, but I wanted to point out the differences between the book and the movie. Mm. So the family um, that the book is based on, uh, the DeFeo family, had lived in the house for 10 years uh, prior to the murders, Mm. uh, whereas in the movie they'd only just moved in. Yeah, that's what makes the escalation in the movie over the course of two days so surprising. It's a very fast-acting possession whereas in real life it it was quite slow. Yeah. Uh, My second bit of trivia is uh, the big explosion uh, at the end, or not at the end, at the end of the second act, where the house inexplicably explodes into (laughs) fireballs. Uh, In the movie they used some sort of uh, flammable chemical that burns really quickly, Mm. uh, so it actually doesn't normally damage the things it's around okay apparently uh things went awry and (laughs) part of the house got burnt off Um, but yeah it's it's pretty pretty amazing pretty amazing effect uh to make it look so impressive but to not cause as much damage as it should and no pig involved and no pig in this movie. No. <laughs> no. Although there was a, a pig on the wall, creatively painted by the, the ghost. Yes. <laughs> so, well, I've got some trivia. I don't know if I'm allowed to have some. Ooh, breaking the rules. I like it. <laughs> okay, so in a recent interview, Bert Young, who plays the abusive father, made some comment that he was having a sexual relationship with Diane Franklin, who played his daughter. What? During filming of this movie. What? So there's there's incest happening in the movie and there's incest happening off the movie, kind of. Well, but, yeah. So what was the age dif- difference between the uh, the two actors? 
Yeah, so Diane Franklin was 20, and I think Bert Young was 42. Okay. That's not great, is it? (laughs) It just makes it way worse than it should be. Yeah. So, on that lovely note, let's end the trivia section of the podcast. (laughs) Okay, so another thing that we love talking about is music and sound effects. What did you make of both of those, particularly... Uh, Lalo Schifrin. I don't know how you say that guy's name. He's such... I was I was gonna ask you. <laughs> Is it Lalo? Is it Lalo? I'm, I feel bad because I love his scores. He's done some really great landmark yeah uh, scores like Dirty Harry movies and mm. and this. I think he's quite famous for doing the first two Amityville movies. What did you make of it? Did he do Mission Impossible? Is that him? He did do the theme for Mission Impossible, yes, oh, you're right. right. Yeah, he was he was all about the bongos and spies at one point. <laughs> um, yeah, I love the score in this movie. I, I think it really pushed mm. it along and it really made scenes that were possibly quite bad in terms of acting not so bad. Mm. Um, and it really amped up the terror as well. Mm. But I did find it was... A, very reminiscent of Bernard Herrmann's scores, uh, especially Psycho, obviously. Right, yeah. Um, the whole strings, uh, a lot of tremolo, a lot of trills, a lot of... Mm. Yeah, very similar to Psycho, really. Yeah, those those uh, strings are churning a lot through this score. And I, I love the whole score throughout the final night in the house for the family where he's he's murdering them all. I think the the score is doing a lot of work to mm. make that scene utterly terrifying. There are different beats in that whole sequence. There's sort of the mystery of what's going on and then it devolves into just pure churning terror yeah. as Trish is the last one alive trying desperately to escape. I think it, it brings to life all of those stalking sequences as well where the camera is mm. uh, floating through the house. It, it really does bring those to life. But I did feel some of the scenes, the score was a little too loud and mm. I wish they'd you know, reined it in a little bit to let the sound design um, carry the scenes, especially some of the sort of big scares. Um, I wish there wasn't as much score and more sound. Yeah. But... In saying that, the sound design was very well done. They used the sound of wind really effectively to portray the ghost moving around the house and, Mm. you know, whisking past people. And they used the sound to express uh, coldness as well. Mm. It made the atmosphere of the house and whenever the ghost was moving around very, very creepy. Yeah, there's only one thing that I don't like about the sound design and that comes in the third act where it, it feels almost as though the production value has dropped sharply because the prison set is so creaky. <laughs> it's yeah. All I can hear is creaky wooden floors while the actors are trying to sort of lean in and deliver some really poignant piece of dialogue. And all you can hear is the wooden floor creaking underneath him. And I think I don't think they make prisons out of wood. So <laughs> it's a terrible, terrible scene in terms of sound, I think, that one. But the rest of it, especially all of the stuff in the house, I mean, I love the demon voice 
sound effects as well. Not necessarily the one that's speaking to him through his Walkman, which, <laughs> which we should talk about. But the the sounds that you hear as the camera is going through the house, there's lots of reversed, echoplexed uh, vocal sound effects that are quite creepy, I think. Yeah, I, I noticed that as well. It sounded like they're either reversed shouting or yelling or some sort of weird yeah like you said some sort of vocal sample that they mm. reversed and then put reverb on it and then is coupled with the wind sounds and there was also whispering at some point so it was a very very creepy atmosphere mm. um, and yeah all because of sound design and of course the amazing score mm. yeah i think it's good in terms of sound definitely and it utilized that the the theme from the first movie as well with the with the sounds like a child choir yeah um, singing this very creepy very creepy theme um, that I think yeah. is actually more iconic than the <laughs> than the first movie <laughs> and more <laughs> I don't know I I feel like that theme has had more of a legacy than the movie itself I think you're right actually and I think the the theme in this one is maybe slightly different it's still a lullaby. But I actually prefer this one to the first one. Mm. But the first one is on CD. The first one has been made available, but the score for part two has never been available. And oh. uh, I would really love to see it released. Yeah. So, La La Land, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> or Quartet Records or Intrada. Whoever would like to take this on, go for it. <laughs> there was one sound that was supposed to be, it was more a score, uh, score aspect, I guess. Um, and it sounded like rusty gates. Oh, it was just kind yeah. of this creaking gate sound. I know that's used a lot now, but I think they normally use a bow to bow like a strip of metal or something. Mm. But it, this sounds sounded exactly like a rusty gate mm. and it, it just kept popping up over and over again. And I just <laughs> thought, oh, it's that rusty gate again. They, they should oil that. <laughs> I really loved that some scenes had no score and were very drawn out. Mm. Um, there's one scene in particular that I really loved, um, the birthday scene of Sonny. So it's Sonny's birthday. He has already been possessed and they have a cake for him and it's a whole family and it's a really long shot as he blows out the candle and then he hugs his family members one by one. And it, I think it goes for a good, like, maybe three or four minutes, just one take, mm. dolling around, and it's all close-ups as well, and you're following Sonny as he hugs his family. Um, and then when it finally cuts away, it's of his mum looking at him because he's hugging Trish in a very inappropriate way. Um, mm. And it's, yeah, really <laughs> well-drawn-out, scene that makes you feel really uneasy and yeah. there is no score whatsoever so it makes it even more uneasy uh, it's really well done it is it's a very uncomfortable scene because you feel almost like he's saying goodbye to his family but certainly you get the sense that this is a family that is not used to being this demonstrative or this happy yeah it's very awkward yeah and i don't think it's bad performance i think oh, no. it's meant to be 
very awkward. Oh, it's a great scene. And, and it ends with um, Sonny kind of standing on one side of a table and he's looking at his family and his family is just perfectly composed in this almost family <laughs> portrait-like um, framing and he's very apart from it. And it's, yeah, just really well thought out scene um, mm-hmm. in terms of framing and camera work. Yeah, it's very good in terms of foreshadowing and making you feel uncomfortable. And of course the discomfort gets just worse in the next sequence because that's where he seduces his sister. I guess we should talk about the incest. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a very unconvincing scene for me because she just unquestionably takes off her clothes for him. <laughs> and I don't know, it just <laughs> doesn't seem right. You mean... You never asked your sister to pose naked for you and pretend that you're a photographer taking pictures of her? No, no, not at all. Didn't come up? No. <laughs> no, it's it's very odd. And then she sleeps with him after he's done this and revealed to her that he's stolen some of her underwear from the laundry basket. Yes. I mean, I can buy the whole bit where he's saying to her, you're the most beautiful girl in the world. But I have to tell you a secret. I sniff pairs of your dirty underwear. Wouldn't necessarily, I think, lead to sex in many circumstances. No, but <laughs> it's not. It's not a one-liner that you would casually slip in when you meet someone at the bar. <laughs> no, so I can't see it working in any circumstance, much less with your sister. But no, it does work. And, yeah, and it causes a fair degree of tension in the family because the mother knows just from looking at them that this isn't right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a a very effective film just in terms of making the audience very uncomfortable, I think. Yeah, it does, it does. For me, what suffered the most in this movie was um, cliché. There were so many clichés. First of all, it felt so. The first two acts felt like I was watching Poltergeist uh, mixed with, I guess, all of those haunting movies that I have never actually seen. <laughs> but I would assume influence this movie like The Haunting and uh, The Changeling, but I haven't actually seen them. Yeah, you could be right. I mean, I think Poltergeist came out the same year, so I'm not oh, sure. Okay, how those two may have intersected but i mean this comes in a long line of films where the film is purportedly based on fact in some way so you had the exorcist i think pretty much started this trend because that was supposedly based on a real story yeah of possession and exorcism and then you have things like the entity and you have the original amityville horror and Mm. so there was this trend of things that were based on real life experiences in some way or another. Sure. And whereas Amityville 2 is sort of uncoupled from all that, it plays fast and loose with it and does something that that Amityville Horror, the first movie, was criticised for, which is that this kind of haunted house movie has been done so much more effectively when it's entirely fictional. So Poltergeist and The Shining Mm. are much more effective movies. But yeah, you do see a lot of things happening in all of them that are fairly familiar but i don't know if that's because they were already cliches or whether they're cliches now yeah i just there were just scene after scene that i thought oh it's another cliche 
uh, I guess, you know, the whole poltergeist thing with the moving furniture and the windows opening and closing. Mm. But I felt like they went too far. Like they could have showed maybe two scenes where things were moving around and it was fine, but they would show another scene and then another scene. And then there was was a scene where the bed was spinning in circles. Like, I mean, come on. Mm. Just less less (laughs) is more, I felt. Less is more. Yeah, and that's all, all, again, tied in with the fact that this escalates quite far, quite quickly, that they yeah. they pretty much haven't unpacked and already mirrors are throwing themselves off the wall and <laughs> and they they come to the point of almost murdering each other. I mean, that's yes. one thing to say for the original, there is more of a slow burn, but the problem with that one is it just never, <laughs> never gets out of the slow burn and is boring as hell. So I think this one tried to change that. Yeah. So you get two acts that are just crazy. And then you get to the third act, which turns into The Exorcist. Mm. And then the final scene where where Sonny gets exorcised, I guess, but it goes into body horror and he turns his skin rips off and <laughs> it's this incredible um, effect that they did where he, he, yeah, pretty much turns into this demon monster and sheds its skin, I guess, and yeah. is free of the, the <laughs> demon. But it was it was quite... Because you've never seen any of that sort of gore apart from the, the pulsating bladders, but you hadn't seen anything mm. similar to that prior to that scene, but it was the final scene. So it, it felt out of place to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a great sequence. It um, is, it is. The effects are really cool to look at. But um, you think afterwards, because he just sort of rises crucifix-like from the floor with jets of smoke and light (laughs) behind him, and he's fine. Yeah, he's just been reborn and he walks away happy that his family has been murdered by him. And goes to jail (laughs) for the rest of his life. Ronald DeFeo is still in prison as we record so oh right um, but at least he's demon free presumably yes well, <laughs> of course <laughs> he can sleep soundly he can and with not a scar from his demon emerging experience. no not a scratch on him <laughs> no <laughs> um i did feel like the third act as well was very it felt like they'd used up all their budget on the first two acts <laughs> yeah. the third act was that they were kind of just killing time, I guess, mm. um, because there were a lot of scenes, like I said, there was a scene where one of the priests just stammers his line, <laughs> but there's another scene where the, the main priest is going through this house at the end to find Sonny and a beam falls over and interrupts his sermon or his his um, biblical recitation. <laughs> and it, it looks like he actually genuinely got startled by this falling beam because he pauses <laughs> and kind of looks at it and then steps aside and walks under it and continues his, um, <laughs> his reading. And... Well, yeah, I don't, the show must go on. <laughs> I just felt like there were a lot of takes that they kept in that obviously looked like mistakes. But yeah, I mm. do think maybe they just had run out of funds and they were just trying <laughs> to finish the rest of the film on on the <laughs> the dregs of the budget. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. So it's time for us to give awards to some of our favourite aspects of the movie, or at least favourite, as it often turns <laughs> out to be the case. As always, we like to kick off with our favourite quote from the movie. I have to say, I struggled with this this time because 
it as I mean the script is very good. I mean it works as a, as a horror drama, but there isn't much that's quotable. I don't think. No, that's I struggled as well, and the quotes that I wrote down were not so much memorable quotes, but very badly delivered <laughs> quotes. <laughs> Even worse than "Can I give you a lift?" <laughs> Well, the quote that I've got written down is actually from the same uh, character, and I'm gonna try and recite it the way that she delivered it. Mm. So they're in the library, and she's bringing out all of these newspaper clippings or, or archived files about uh, the house, and then she says, "At first, I thought it would be very boring, but these records are more interesting than any novel." <laughs> and that's pretty much how she delivered it. She's terrible, bless her. Very wooden and very uh, almost monotonic and, and the inflections were completely wrong. <laughs> I, I also, there was another quote that I have from the more important priest and he says, I saw a ghost once, or at least what appeared to be a ghost, although I thought I saw a ghost, there may have been another explanation. <laughs> That's just a meaningless line that doesn't really go anywhere or, or add to anything. No, the only one I have noted down was during a confessional scene where Trish is confessing to Father Adamski following the, the incest moment. She exclaims to Father Adamski, he does it to hurt God. Which I thought was oh. quite a grand pronouncement. <laughs> yeah. I'm not quite sure how she arrived at that decision about her brother's behaviour. <laughs> okay, most 80s moment. I don't know, actually. It was... I felt that this movie was more 70s, and it, it almost felt like it was a homage to 70s horror and the whole mm. possession, haunting, um, cliché. So... Yeah, there were lots of 70s things, I guess. Yeah, there isn't so much by way of 80s nostalgia, I guess, except for the ever-present Walkman. Oh, yeah, there which, is that. as it turns out, is the conduit to hell, because <laughs> that's how the possessed character receives his instructions from Beelzebub, yeah. um, as one does. And it kind of reflects adults' real fears about the device, I think, because this was a whole new thing that their kids could be shut off from them and in this this world of their own and it was yeah it they felt that it promoted isolation and Ooh. antisocial behavior and could very well lead to gunning down your family at 3 a.m in the morning yeah but yeah um, i'm not sure what statistics they had to back that up <laughs> yeah so i think the walkman is probably the most iconic 80s thing yeah i would agree in the movie I would agree. Um, I, d I didn't get much sense if, if we move on to best hair. I'm not sure anybody had particularly wonderful hair in this movie. No. No. Although there was no one that I thought uh, won best hair, I do feel there was one character that was very small that um, should get nomination for best dressed. Uh -huh. okay. uh, so the, the black lawyer that is representing Sonny mm. is just a very well put together gentleman um, he's got a bespoke black suit waistcoat a brilliant red vibrant tie and th the most magnificent full-blown moustache that you have ever seen um, he's got gold rim glasses and he's got a shaved head oh he was just immaculate 
and I give him nomination for best dress. Well, maybe best facial hair because that moustache really is something. It was. It really was. So we shall just skip along to favourite scene. And in my case, my favourite scene is definitely the scene where the camera is prowling around the house just before the possession with that fantastic shot you mentioned where it arches over the top of Sonny uh, and arrives down on his face and twists around. That whole sequence is terrifying. And just in terms of camera movement, performance from Jack Magna Mm. and the score or lack of in some cases, I think the whole sequence is just fantastic. Mm. It's really frightening. Yeah, I, I would agree. That scene, also the first ghosty scenes with the mother when she goes into the basement and, yeah, the ghost is prowling around her and you can see the camera going up close to her and, and the the wind sound design. And it's, mm. yeah, it's a very unsettling scene and I thought she acted it very well as, as well with her mm. eye movements and just her sense of uh, tension as well yeah mm. really good scene really good also I, of course I really love the birthday cake scene mm. that I've already mentioned um, yeah it's a really well choreographed uh, camera movements that made the scenes much more interesting yeah definitely so moving on to cliches most cliched horror moment now you probably have reams of them I have <laughs> countless points noted in the film where there were cliche horror moments so blood comes out of the tap yes. which uh, <laughs> I I can't even count on, on all my fingers the amount of times I've seen that in horror movies <laughs> Uh, the mystery door knocks at the door mm. and you open it and, and there's no one there. <laughs> also, the excessive uh, poltergeist furniture movement. Mm. Uh, I still laugh at that scene where everything's moving around and, and then it just shows this bed just revolving in circles. <laughs> but there's no one on it. There's no one in the room. It's just a, a bed having a good old uh, spin around by itself. It's just entertaining um, itself. <laughs> also, uh, in the possession scene, there's a red light that turns on <laughs> and then when he gets possessed it's uh it goes green a green yeah light, so for me one of my pet peeves is when characters sit bolt upright in bed after having had a nightmare yeah because <laughs> nobody does this at least i've never done it i think you could really throw your back out and also the thunder you've mentioned this before it's an 80s movie there's blue thunder everywhere there is and not helicopters there is a lot of blue thunder and Um, There's one scene, the final scene, where the priest goes into the house to find Sonny um, and there seems to be lightning coming from inside the house. Yeah. um, Because there are multiple lightning flashes from different (laughs) parts of the house and also rain um, inside the house as well. And Um, leaves falling. and Yeah. Yeah. There was one scene where there was an exterior shot of the house and there was thunder and lightning, but it was red lightning. Mm. I don't know whether you noticed it, but... Yeah, um, it's very strange. It's an optical effect and it's really odd. Right. Okay. Yeah. I love it how whenever a character is trapped in a house and they try to get out, they're doing they're open, trying to open all the windows and all of the windows in this movie are all nailed shut for some some reason mm. um, and Trish is trying to smash a window with a chair and she's really going at it with this chair and it's just not budging but I found it 
<laughs> I don't know why, but I found it unintentionally funny because it looks like a really strong window. Like yeah. they must have had to really reinforce that window because she's really going at it. <laughs> she is. I'm not sure what glass that's made out of, but it's pretty impressive. It has to be said. Oh, very impressed. Okay, so how about favourite special effect? Um, of course I like the final scene where he sheds his skin mm. like a demon snake <laughs> because it just looked really cool. But uh, in terms of other effects, uh, I quite liked all the furniture movement mm. um, because you knew that they were actual practical effects. So I quite like the tablecloth uh, getting pulled off a table and draped across uh, the hallway. Yeah, because that's that a really cool. complicated thing to pull off. And the, the camera starts in the basement and it travels all the way through the house and then that happens. It's, it's really cool. Yeah. How about you, Conrad? That, that was mine as well. Oh, okay. <laughs> mine, mine is a tablecloth. I'm easily pleased. I, I That was a very impressive effect, just knowing that it was all practical. Yeah. Because um, they've done it in the Conjuring movies, but they've used CGI. So. Mm, yeah, lazy, and the fabric never looks right. Yeah, exactly. How about favourite sound effect? I, As per usual, I have a least favourite sound effect, which is... Uh, when Moses Gunn, the police officer, sympathises with Adamski and says, you can take Sonny away for your exorcism scene, just cold cock me on the back of the head with my gun. When he actually does hit him, I think Moses must be made out of wood because there's just this very soft wooden clunking yeah. sound. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that as well. It was quite a mismatched sound. <laughs> it was. Um, yeah. Okay, so uh, what was your favourite sound effect? So sound design-wise, I really loved the film overall. But there was one scene that was very unintentionally funny. So the mover or the handyman <laughs> uh, has found some sort of secret room in the basement of the house as he's uh, moving the family's belongings in and he goes to check it out and he gets swarmed by flies mm. <laughs> and then pelted with feces i guess just uh, coming out of the, <laughs> the darkness um so yeah. the the sound of the, of the flies it sounds like a, a maybe like a 10 second loop that just keeps looping over and over and over. And you also don't really see that many flies in that scene. So it just, <laughs> it just comes across as ridiculous, as well as this character getting pelted by shit, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing I don't understand is rather than getting out of there, he just sort of pats at himself with a handkerchief. Yes, <laughs> exactly. That's not helping. Nope. Get out. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, great oh, scene. <laughs> so, our last category, star rating for fake blood. Um, it was very 70s blood, wasn't it? It, it looks yeah. like thick red paint all yeah. the time. <laughs> yeah, especially when it's trying to redecorate the house. Yeah. Yeah, it's very thick and um, not not terribly convincing. So, Although there was that one scene where there was a river or rather a trickling stream of blood coming from the basement. I thought it was quite, it was like, oh, that's, that's obviously a very low budget version of the shining scene, which has a torrent of blood going down the hallway, whereas this is just a trickling stream. Yes, yeah, and quite frothy, as I remember. Yeah, very frothy. It looked like raspberry cordial or something, very frothy. 
Uh, and last time you added a new category, which was funniest scenes. Yes. I think we're going to struggle on this movie. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, As always, I find uh, the funniest scenes always something that's unintentionally funny. Okay. I don't know. I Maybe I found this movie too funny, but there were... <laughs> it's pretty grueling. One of, the scenes, <laughs> one of the scenes was the possession scene with the camera going in and out. Mm. And and just like focusing on his belly button, I thought that was <laughs> ridiculous. While Sonny's just screaming his head off in in the background. <laughs> also, the scene where the priest is blessing the house, and for some reason his holy water turns into blood, and he's blessing mm. this bed, flicking blood all over the place. Um, <laughs> but you don't see the blood first; you just see the the mum, and she's just screaming hysterically like far too hysterically for just a little bit of blood splash uh, on the bed uh, i found that just hilarious maybe it's her favorite duvet or something <laughs> maybe and then the priest starts just pouring at himself with with all his blood everywhere and then he goes to the bathroom and kind of half-heartedly spews into the sink i don't know i thought the scene was just over the top just escalated far too quickly um yeah <laughs> okay i think that will be our moobly awards yeah So it's time for our final verdict. We have to decide whether this demon should be released, that the the power of Christ should compel it out of the oubliette, or whether it should go back in there to prowl the house and fill it with flies. What do you think? <laughs> um, I'm really torn. I, I'm actually unsure of whether to set it free or to um, throw it back in because oh. there were many scenes that I loved and I I really loved the camera work. I really loved the sound design and the score, but I felt like there were so many cliches, so many horror cliches, mm. so many times where I felt like they were just blatantly copying another movie and quite a few scenes where the acting was very below par. Mm. So yeah, I'm really I'm really torn. What what do you think? Well, this is a childhood favorite of mine. I was a bit of a, a bit of an amateurville nerd. I have uh, both of the books, and because I was sold on the whole, this is all based on a true story. <laughs> and I think going back to it, looking back on it, it's two thirds of a good movie. Yeah, I think if it had finished with led up to more slowly. Uh, had more spooky stuff gradually building <laughs> and then led up to the final murders. But I suppose that's a bit of a bummer of an ending, isn't it? <laughs> Although yeah. what what we have isn't isn't much of an improvement. But it's I think it's two thirds of a really effective family drama supernatural movie. Yeah. But again, a, a lot of what you're seeing in it has been done more effectively elsewhere. So The Shining is a classic and Poltergeist is a classic and new films like The Conjuring yeah. are fantastic as well. Yeah, so it's a question of whether we think this one really has anything good to offer that's unique, that makes it worth seeing. Well, I mean, I do feel like it is 
despite the horror cliches that it has, um, there were a number of character and story points that were quite original and quite unique that I hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, even like just the family dynamic, they weren't a happy family. They were dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Um, the father was abusive and the brother was seducing his sister. Um, <laughs> there were, There was a lot going on. And yeah, like you said, two thirds of the film is is fantastic. But after that second act, yeah, it really derailed the film, and it felt mm. I felt like the third act really dragged it down, and was a mm. bit redundant. Yeah, I didn't really even care what happened at the end of the third act. No. Um, <laughs> and and probably in a year's time, I will only remember the first two acts. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's it's really potent stuff, the family drama. And uh, I mean, particularly the son slowly going bad and, and getting to the point where he's going to kill his whole family. And the final sequence where he's doing that and you have the tension with the sister trying to direct one of the youngest kids out yeah. of harm's way and the lightning strikes and you can see that he's standing behind him with his gun raised the whole time it's a really good sequence oh it's terrifying yeah to go from that to administrative arguments in the church and and a fairly boring prison breakout and a ridiculous exorcism sequence that we've seen before uh-huh. yeah it's a real shame and yet it's I mean, yeah the film is is touching on some interesting issues in terms of the family dynamics and the director himself links the main character to the trend of the the angry white male with a gun mm-hmm. that's peculiar to america and the rest of the film draws very much on um He's an Italian director. Obviously, Catholicism is, I've heard, a big thing there. There's (laughs) a lot of of Catholic (laughs) guilt and so on (laughs) embedded in this film. And the director brings an interesting sensibility to it and a very creative style of executing some of the scenes. Yeah. But I'm torn too. I kind of feel as though it's worth seeing just because of the execution of the first two acts. And then maybe you turn it off. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I have to admit, though, that I did enjoy watching this film more than watching the original Amityville horror. And I know it's a big claim, but I... There are so many flaws in the first movie and there are so many parts Mm. where it's just, ah, just long scenes that just will not end and not a huge amount of, not as much horror elements as I would like, whereas this Mm. really did, it felt scary. I did feel tension Mm. and suspense. It does deliver and it fits into the category of films. Quite often I find that I prefer sequels to the originals. So even in cases where... It's sort of sacrilegious. So I would say that I prefer (laughs) Jaws 2 to Jaws 1. I recognise Jaws is a classic, but I just love watching a group of kids under siege out at sea with their rafts, their boats all tied together. Yeah, I really like Jaws 2 uh, quite a lot more than Jaws 1. So, yeah, I think that I enjoy, if I go to watch an Amityville movie, I watch Amityville 2. And I don't, I have a box set, but I only watch the second one. I'm not particularly interested. And I've never watched the third one, actually, which is, which is in 3D. And I have the 3D version, so I could try to don some glasses and see whether it still works. But yeah, I've never watched it. So Uh I mean, I think my case for it is that if you want to watch an Amityville movie, this is the one to watch. But does that make it good enough? (laughs) So, yeah, this movie, if the third act didn't exist and it was just a little bit more drawn out, 
maybe some more creepy scenes. Also, um, maybe if it wasn't even called Amityville 2, you know, if it was mm. it had its own name and it would maybe stand alone a little bit better. Mm. Because, yeah, it did feel like it was a prequel, sequel, and a remake all at the same time. Mm. But in saying that, they made it better. Mm. It wasn't like they were rehashing things from the first movie. They were trying Mm. to make something sort of more unique. Yeah. So what are we going to do with it, Dan? Are we going to let it go or are we going to throw it back in? I guess we're (laughs) going to tentatively let it go. We could let go two-thirds of it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sure. If you want to do the the (laughs) slicing and dicing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here we go. Okay, so it's only got three legs now, but off you go. (laughs) (laughs) Hobbling along slowly. Limping a bit. (laughs) Bye-bye, Amityville 2. Bye. Ah, and now another one has left the fold. I guess we should think about what we're going to haul out of the oubliette next time. What are we going for, Dan? It's your pick. So I thought we'd go back to the science fiction realm and we will Mm. be doing the film from 2009, Pandorum, which was uh, directed by Christian Alvart, someone that I don't think I have seen any of his other movies. (laughs) No, me neither. Um, It's also starring Dennis Quaid, Mm. who I don't normally like as an actor. (laughs) Oh, I love Dennis Quaid. So, yeah, tune in next time for Pandorum. Mm, Okay. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Movie Oubliette. Please follow us on our socials, Twitter and Instagram. Tell us what you thought about Amityville 2 and what we should consider for future episodes. Our tag, as always, is Movie Oubliette. And if you're not sure how to spell Oubliette, Here's an earworm for you. I think it's too cold right now. Uh, my ears aren't working. What? Okay, yes, I think that makes it clear. So yes, follow us and give us reviews and star ratings on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. It really, really helps us out and because um, we want more of you, more of you listening to us. Yes, we do. We're, we're egocentric like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so join us in the dungeon next time on Movie Oubliette. I'm Conrad. And I'm Dan. Goodbye for now. Goodbye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie Juliet. Father, are you all right? Can I give you a lift?